0: all right it 's it 's coming back there, so we, we because of the camp out we 're not doing the overflow room, but that would be the first time in eight months we haven 't done that. Our whole system is set up on projecting into the overflow room, so we 're having to readjust back so i 'm sure it 'll come back to us here shortly but uh, anyway i can I can tell just from looking at all of you in the eyes that. You all got much better sleep than most of those that are up at the camp out the last day and a half, so it was fun at the potluck yesterday to see. I was just shocked at how many little whippersnappers there were all over the place. There were kids everywhere, which is awesome, a lot, a lot of fun, um, but uh, they're having a good time up at the camp out, and thank you for being, being here this morning. So turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, Julie read from Psalm 77, that's where we're going to be this morning. So, oh, they're still working. All right, so um, we have spent the last eight months going through 1st and 2nd Timothy. And in that time, when we started or right before that series, the elders got together and thought, how how awesome would it be for us as a church to go through what are normally pretty difficult books to preach through because they're really designed for pastoral leadership. And we, we were talking about this and we thought, how great would it be to have a time where we as a church walk through these pastoral teachings from the, the, the seasoned Pastor Paul towards the end of his life, speaking to the younger Timothy, who was at the beginning of his ministry. How neat would it be if, as we preach through this, it would equip us as a church, all of us, to, to take on a shepherd's heart? Because as a church, our whole purpose is to, to express the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus one to another as well as to proclaim that to our community. And so learning to, to see how the church functions in that and how we as a church are equipped in those ways is a pretty special thing. And uh, I can just say that I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for our church that I've seen that in the last eight months. I've seen the application of that shepherding that's taking place um, in your lives, in your marriages, in your um, in your growth groups, um, and in our community. You've heard the testimonies, and we could share some of those. We've been sharing some of those, but in any case, uh, we, will, uh, we will break from that series now, and we're going to just spend today looking at a single psalm, Psalm 77. And if you have notes, you can follow along. We'll see if they'll get put up here in just a minute. But um, with this, Psalm 77, I just wanted to let you know that it's written by a guy named Asaph. Now, Asaph, you might think, who is he? Well, um, there were a bunch of people from the tribe of Levi, the Levites, that King David put in the specific and the special role of being the worship leaders amongst the tabernacle choir, and Asaph was one of the most gifted of these worship leaders. He was spoken of in the book of Chronicles as someone who had great talent in singing and in poetry. And also, as you read in scripture, what you'll find, it'll say oftentimes there are the sons of Asaph. And by that means that this was a group of skilled poets and singers that would come under their master's teaching and apply his musical gifts Um, as they grew in their talents as well. And it's kind of interesting because as church has today still our musicians, some of the the, uh, commentators said that we can look at our Noah and Kylies and Carries and Jesses and and Joes and and everybody else um, as children of Asaph because these are our worship leaders. So this is Asaph. Now what's interesting with Asaph is he was probably one of the most gifted leaders in worship. He was a leader amongst the church. He was a leader in, um, in King David's court. And yet, as we look at Psalm 77, what we find, even though this is a gifted man of God with all of these blessings in his life, he struggled. He struggled with depression. He struggled with a troubled heart. He struggled with anxieties. He found himself, as he comes to this psalm, um, at some, some points almost at a dead end. And we get to, some thousands of years later, look at see how he walked through this crisis in his life, this crisis of faith um, faithfully. And we get to kind of the whole picture just in this one psalm, Psalm 77. So, And it looks like we're still having technical difficulties, so I'll just verbally cue you as we we go into this. Let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we already thank you for the time that we have by your grace to spend with one another, because we would rather be nowhere else. We'd rather be nowhere else than with your people, um, exalting your name. And as we turn to your word to us, Lord, we recognize that It is, it's alive and it's active, and uh, we thank you for this means of grace. We thank you for this revelation, and we pray, Father, that we would, we would walk away today equipped anew, encouraged, challenged, even rebuked and exhorted to more faithfully walk and rest and lean upon our Savior Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray, amen, amen. So, Psalm 77, oh, this is the problem. This is, it's, it's, on it's not on there. Okay, well, the other problem is that somewhere this morning between my office and the pulpit, I set down my Bible and I can't find it anywhere. So I was just gonna read it off of that. So now I'm really in trouble. This one's in old English. Um, there we go. So we will use, if anybody finds a black Bible that looks just like this, don't steal it. That would be really bad. Uh, that would be really bad. So. Um, all right, so let's read verses 1 through 6 as we, as we launch in here. Thank you, Diane, for working on this. Psalm 77, verse 1 through 6. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord, and in the night my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remembered God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Thou hast held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with I will meditate with my heart, and my spirit ponders. So, as you're taking notes, the, the, the first thing that we can see here in this first section is that what Asaph does is he tries to deal with this crisis of faith. Is what he does is he cries out unto God. He cries out unto the Lord, and this can kind of seem maybe obvious, of course. So that we can we should cry out to the Lord in the midst of our our distress. But that's what Asaph does here, and we can we can look at that too. Now, this makes me think of kind of the classic. Husband wife argument that may take place where the man would say something along the lines of, Would you just tell me exactly what you want from me? And then the wife would say, You should know what I want from you. I shouldn't have to tell you. It's kind of that that same thing that we can say as we look to the Lord. Why should I have to cry out unto the all knowing God? Why should I cry out to the Lord? when he knows all things and and the, there's obvious reasons for this we we cry out or we pray for many reasons one we pray because it's simply just a reflection of our relationship with him it's a reflection i mean we love talking with friends and and our spouses hopefully and, and our kids and and we, we, these are things that we we enjoy because it's a reflection of our relationship with one another and it's the same thing here. We pray because it's a reflection of our relationship with our God through Christ Jesus' Son. We pray because Jesus himself was committed to prayer. When we read the Gospels, we saw it when we went through the Gospel of Mark. Many times, Jesus slips away in the midst of craziness, and he goes off for a night of prayer, a night of meditation, all on his own. So he did it. If, if the Son of God, God in the flesh, finds it important to pray, wow. How, how much more should we? We pray because it also gives us power over evil. We know that what we see on the surface is just on the surface and that there's a whole war that's being waged in the, in the spiritual realm and the darkness that we can't see. And, and so our voice in that and our tools and our weapons in that warfare, as Ephesians teaches us, is prayer. We also pray just as a simple matter of obedience. It's not a word we like using today, but it is a word that's imperative to the life of a follower of Jesus, is to be obedient. And we see all kinds of patterns where we're commanded to, to pray, Ephesians again. Ephesians says that we should pray at all times, in all circumstances, in many different ways, and especially for the perseverance of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should pray all times. First Thessalonians says that we are to pray without ceasing. It's almost like our prayer is the same as our breath. It's, it's such a rhythm of our life, is that we we are people of prayer. And then James, more applicable to what I think Asaph was dealing with here, James 5.13 says, in our times of trouble, we are to call out unto the Lord. We're to call out unto him, cry out unto God. And that's what we see Asaph doing. Now, it's not always fair to make generalizations, but I'm gonna make a couple here. Um, Generally speaking, generally women will tend to cry out to others. They'll cry out to a friend, they'll cry out to a spouse, they'll cry out to a family member. They may cry out on social media. They, they cry out somewhere, they, 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 they share that. Um, men, on the other hand, men, we tend to cry out to no one. We tend to just stuff what is going on inside. And when we look at Asaph here, we don't see him doing either of those things. He's not crying out to somebody else. He's not stuffing, he's crying out unto the Lord. And I think it's a good pattern for us to remember when we find ourselves in these crises that our first call is unto, unto God. Now, verse two is one that is, is a scary verse, but I think those who have gone through difficulties and crisis can, can speak to this. He says, in the day of my trouble, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord, and in the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul, listen here, my soul refuses to be comforted. My soul refuses to be comforted. His, His despair is so great. He is in such a deep hole in his heart and in his head and in his depression that he can't even conceive being comforted. And this is a really tough place to be in. It's a tough place to be in where you feel trapped. You feel like you're, you're sinking without any way of escaping. And that's virtually what he's crying out unto the Lord with is that he's, he's stuck and he doesn't see a way out. Now look at verses three and four. Oh, you guys are awesome. There we go. Maybe, all right. Verse 2, verses 3 and 4. This isn't working. Are you doing the pushing for me? I'm doing it? Okay. Oh, I'm already on a point two. Don't go there. Okay, verses 3 and 4. Thank you, guys. When I remembered God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot even speak. See, as he remembers God, it says he moans. He remembers God and he moans. What does this mean? I believe that this means that as he is in his mess, he's in his mess, he, he, he sees that God has worked in the past, but he doesn't sense God working at all now. And so he, his, his, his difficulties are only intent, intensified because God isn't at work now. For him, God's failure to act is troubling him to the point where he can't even sleep. And I think many of us have been in that place where you're, you're up at night and you're troubled and you can't sleep. And so here he is, these first few verses, this first section, he's in this crisis of faith and he's making this known unto the Lord. And so he, so he cries out. And the next thing we see in this second section here is he sees that he deals with this crisis of faith by being very honest, being very honest, and crying out unto God. Look at verse seven, it says, "'Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? "'Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at the end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? So he brings these concerning questions to God. Uh, These are logical questions in the circumstances that he finds himself in. He's basically saying, God, in the past, in the past, um, you've answered my cries. You've gave me a song at the night, but today, nothing. Nothing's going on today. I hear nothing from you. Have you changed? So it's an interesting question. Because in a sense, they, they, these questions almost answer themselves. Look at verse eight, it says this. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises, are his promises an end for all times? So this word here, steadfast love, it's a a really powerful word in the Hebrew. I can't say it well, so I won't pronounce it. But it's really just one word. And it's translated a number of different ways as you go through the Old Testament. It's translated um, as loving kindness, faithful love, unfailing love, merciful. But the idea behind this steadfast love that he thinks has ceased, the idea behind it is that, that God has made this promise and this word kind of, wraps its arms completely around the covenant relationship that God has for his people Israel. That's what this idea is that in this word, steadfast love. And so Aethaph is asking, has this steadfast covenant love, this promise that you've made, did it have an end? And it really, his, his question looks like this, and if you've got your notes, it says this. Has his unfailing love failed? Has his unfailing love, Lord, has your unfailing love failed? Is it no longer steadfast? Was that steadfastness only for a time? Is your word no longer valid? Are your promises such that they have an expiration date on them? Is your flow of mercy, Lord, in my life and in your people's life come to an end? So there's nothing here in Asaph's heart and his mind in his present circumstances that gives him any evidence of God's care and his love and his sovereignty in his life. And I don't know, this could be very well where some of you are at today. And if it's not, then chances are there's gonna be a season of time where you will ask questions similar to what Asaph is asking here. So he faces this this kind of this conundrum, this choice. You see, he recognizes that he's believed the faithfulness of God in the past, but now he's kind of wondering, is is this, faithfulness still present today? And that leads to the next question. I believe God in the past, but do I believe him when I don't hear from him? Do I trust God even when I can't point in my present circumstances to something that is trustworthy? Has my belief and my trust in him passed in the past only because of his goodness? Is it only because he's been faithful as I see it? Is that the only reason that I have trusted him and believed in him? Is my faith just based upon that? Can I believe God when I don't feel the presence of God? Can I believe him? Now, there's a great story in the the Old Testament that most of you have heard. The story in Daniel three of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here we got three young men under the age of of 20 who have lived really a pretty blessed life, but they find themselves uh, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and they're being or trying to be forced to bow down to this golden image and they're refusing. And, and so as they kind of find themselves before Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar asks this question because he's going threatening them with death, throwing them into the fiery furnace. And, and Nebuchadnezzar says, what God can deliver you out of my hand? What God can do this? And so the pressure really comes, comes on these men And if you look at their present circumstances, they're in exile, they're now before the court, they're facing death. There's nothing in their present circumstances that is pointing to the presence or the faithfulness of God right then at that moment. But listen to the the way that they respond to the most powerful person in the known world at that time, King Nebuchadnezzar. This is how they answer him in, in Daniel chapter three, verses 17 and 18. They say this, they say, our God is able to deliver us. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he does not, let it be known that we are not going to serve your gods. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he does not, let it be known that we are not going to serve your gods. They chose, in this moment, they chose to believe God regardless of his presence in regard of those present circumstances. And I believe this is what Asaph is, is beginning to be asked to do. And that all of us are oftentimes facing in the midst of our own trials and our own struggles. Will we believe God? Will we believe him because of what he's done just simply for us in the past? Um, or do we require him to be present now in order for us to be faithful now? With Asaph, he's starting to flesh this out, and we can kind of see it. It's kind of fun to watch him go through this. He's fleshing this out in his own heart, but you start to see, as we make this turn in this passage, you start to see um, him getting a more clear picture of, of faith and how to walk through this crisis. He's, he's uh, starting to, as he gets now to verses 11 and, and 12, which is where we draw our third point from. Asaph dealt with his crisis of faith by by strengthening his resolve in in the Lord's character. He strengthens his his heart, his resolve in not his own abilities. He doesn't just pull himself up by his bootstraps. He strengthens himself in what he knows to be true about the Lord. Verses three through six, we got to see Asaph kind of, as one of my old bosses said, crying in his beer. He is, he's moaning, he's in despair, he can't kind of get his mind off of his present circumstances, he's stuck wallowing in his pain, but in verses 11 and 12, it becomes quite different. Here he's now thinking um, on what? He's not thinking about the mess that he's in, he starts to think upon the mighty deeds of his God. He starts to think on, on the Lord, and in and, and three phases in verses 11 and 12, what we see is him say, I will, He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. He's moving from having this emotion, which is controlling his his thought life and his, 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 his being, to coming under the circumstances and stepping back and allowing his will to grasp and intellectually engage in what he knows to be true. He's forcing himself to move away from just indulging in his feelings, and he's focusing on what he really knows to be true. And so the fruit of this, which is great, the fruit of this is beautiful. He focuses, we see three, we see three characteristics in in verses 13 and through 15. He says, your way, O God, is holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who works great wonders. You have displayed your might among the peoples. With your strong arm, you redeem your people, the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Joseph. He focuses on the holiness of God, the fact that God is set apart, that he's pure, that he's perfect, that he's different than anything else. He focuses in verse 14 on the greatness of God, the works and the wonders of God that has been displayed his might in so many different ways. He's the strong arm. And then verse 15, he focuses on the redemption, the redeemer God. Not only is he holy and powerful and mighty, but he's a redeemer. He's one that cares, he's one that reaches down, he's one that saves, which is awesome. So with this confidence then in the character of God, Asaph reminds himself of a a pretty powerful event in history. He reminds himself of something powerful that took place specifically as it relates to something that happened to his people at the Red Sea. We, we pick this story up, and, and he, he gives a poetic picture of this story um, that took place in Exodus chapter 14. But, but again, let's remember a little bit about this circumstance. Asaph, he's cried out to God, and he saw no hope for himself at this point. Um, he didn't hear God's answer, um, but then he remembers Israel was up against something pretty powerful at the Red Sea, with the Egyptian army behind him, and there was no way by any human effort whatsoever. There was nothing that they could do to be saved. And so these people, they cry out to Moses, the leader of those people, and they said, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us here away to die in the wilderness? See, they're, they're desperate at this point. The, the, the Israelites are re- really desperate. Uh, now, like Asaph, they, they had seen God work in their past. I mean, it wasn't long ago that, that we, we saw their, their, the manna from heaven come forth. They had seen the plagues. Um, they had just come from showing God's power, his holiness, and his redemptive love. But instead, they got caught up, right? They got caught up in their present circumstances. It's somewhat, it's somewhat understandable. They've got a sea in front of them and a, and a charging army behind them. But they're stuck there. But listen to Moses' response. Moses says, stand by. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. So we see Moses speaking to his people here, and it's pretty powerful. It's pretty powerful. Moses standing firm before the people. He was encouraging them. He was encouraging them um, that God will display his character. And so he speaks out and Moses says this, what are you, what are you crying to me about? The sons of Israel, now you go forward. So that's the, that's the picture in Exodus 14, but let's let's look at how Asaph poetically describes this event in in the, the last verses here. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. The very deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies thundered. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses. This is, um, this is a pretty picture here. And what I want to focus on here is, is the, the final point, and it's this. Asaph dealt with his crisis of faith by knowing that the greatness... His greatest fears themselves feared God. Asaph's greatest fears themselves feared God. What were the Israelites afraid of? They were afraid of the Egyptians, but they were also afraid of of the sea. They couldn't walk into the sea because that was instant death, but they couldn't stand there either. That was certain death as well. But then in verse 16, it says, when the waters, when they saw you, O God, the waters were afraid. And so he's making this important point, one that could be easily looked over. The very things that Asaph fears, the very things that the Israelites fear, and frankly, the very things that the children of God today fear. Those things themselves fear God. Anything that they face and anything that we face in this world that causes us to tremble, that causes us to be anxious about anything to do with the pressures on our lives, and we all deal with different pressures in many different ways, relationally, health, financially, spiritually, all of these different fears that come upon us. Those fears themselves, according to this text, they fear God. They fear the control of a sovereign God. Whatever we may fear, they may fear. This is a very trivial example, but it it works. In middle school, there was a guy named Tommy. He was this the stereotypical bully. And he was much bigger than me. And um, I I feared him. But God has always kind of given me like a peacemaker attitude. And Tommy was picking on one of the other younger underclassmen in, in, in school. And it came... Point where it was either gonna stand by and do nothing or it was gonna to try to do something. But you see, I was terrified of Tommy and so I'm, I'm, I'm facing this conundrum. I've got this fear of Tommy, um, but I have this desire to, to, you know, to help advocate for this other guy. But then I quickly remembered something. I remembered my best friend. His name was Rod Lidke. Rod Lidke is the heavyweight wrestler He still probably to this day I think holds the record for the quickest pin in the state of Washington and he was my best friend. And all of a sudden when I remembered Rod Lidke in the midst of this moment, Tommy didn't really scare me much no more. And so it just was a quick beckoning of my buddy Rod Lidke and all of a sudden the problem with Tommy was no longer a problem at all. And the point is pretty clear that we can face things in our life, we can have Tommies, and those Tommies take on so many different characteristics and so many different faces. Um, And yet, we have a God in which when that God is present in those circumstances, our God is so much greater, He's so much bigger, and our fears themselves come under submission to the sovereign, loving control of our loving God as we look at this. Asaph, he when he started this psalm, he had a huge problem and a little God. But as he walked through this, this process with the Lord and relating to the Lord in prayer and just to crying out honestly to God, what's going on in his life? As he did this, uh, in this process, we got to see that his his huge problem and his little God became a huge God in the midst of almost an un unknown problem in his life and that's the same thing that we're we're called to for here and when we look at our life today and we will look specifically and we can look back and we can see the works of God and old there's nothing greater that God has done for us than provide us um, a means to relationship with himself through our savior Jesus who loved us perfectly, who cares for us in the best way possible and he provides for us life eternally. We can get so stuck in the mire of this world and we can feel that oftentimes there is no ladder out of that or there's no safety rope, but the reality is that Christ is that safety rope for us. And the joy is that we get to come to worship together and be reminded of the great works of Christ on our behalf, that he rescues us. And in times he has and does heal, in in many different ways. And there's nothing greater than the, the love of Christ that is found and displayed to us on the cross and his blood shed for us. I don't know where you're at today. If you are in this crisis of faith and if you're at a place where you seem you're at a dead end and you would just like prayer, this is what the family of God is for. If you have your notes page, you'll notice in that page the backside of that page, the very last, I think I didn't bring one up here with me. There's a there's a personal devotional, out you know that's normally where we put our growth group questions, but those are just for your personal devotional time this summer. I'd encourage you if you don't have a personal devotional time, you need to. That's why those questions are there. But I think one of the last questions says something along the lines of, you know, as you as you walk through your crisis of faith, put these principles into practice. Um, another one is to 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 reach out to a to a, a godly friend that will encourage you and pray for you, and then there also is in there you'll see that um, our elders, as Andy has mentioned in the, in the weeks gone past, that we've we're going through, we've gone through, and we've every every face in our directory, our church directory has. Has um, an assigned elder where we are. We are just committed. We all already pray, but now we're specifically focusing on families so that we can we can divide and conquer a little bit better. And you'll be getting a letter or a contact in the in the coming weeks from one of those elders that's that's going to be shepherding over your um, you and your family. Um, those, are, those are there, and these men are there so that you can reach out and seek prayer from them as well, or any kind of support that you would need. So just know that that's, that's there. Keep that in mind. So um, with that, I, I'd like to close in prayer, have you stand as uh, Kylie and Noah come up to close us out with, with, a, with a song.